0: chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them. You hate them.
1: But we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy-killing. So, we've had our corporate sad boys... And we've had our creative sad boys, but we have yet to have our overconfident nerd boys. And that brings mm. us to this week's film, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Hey, Eliza. Hey, hey Janelle. <laughs> I'm excited to to get into the nerd boys today. Yes. We we live in a land of nerd boys. We met each other amongst a sea of nerd boys in college, so... <laughs> a sea of nerd, nerd boys. Here. We're going to hear from our nerd boys about that as soon as this yes. goes live. Love you, nerd boys. Love you. Um joining us today to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the World is um friend of the show Trey Chambers. Trey, will you tell the hey. people about yourself?
2: Hey, yeah. Um I am uh, I guess, representing the Nerd Boys in this episode. Yeah, you are. <laughs> so, you know, I'll uh, I'll take one for the team. And uh, my only real qualification to talk about this movie is that I love it so much. It, it is in my uh, top 10 favorite movies of all time. I, I would plug my podcast, but it's kind of defunct. Uh, COVID kind of killed it. Uh, but I, I run a board gaming podcast called Eternally Bored. Like, board is in board game. It's kind of dead now, but you can definitely go check it out if you're into board games. I'm also a board game designer. That's like my side career, so... Uh, if you like podcasts and you like board games, go check out uh, eternallyboard.com while I still have the uh, the URL, which won't be much longer.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. And I feel like your knowledge of sort of the game world will be relevant to this discussion. I mean, board games and video games are different, but not unrelated.
2: Oh, yeah. And I'm a, I'm a huge video gamer as well, which is part of the reason why I, I love this movie <laughs> so much.
0: Which I guess brings us to the movie. Um, so Janelle, do you want to tell
1: us a little bit about Scott Pilgrim versus the world? I sure do, folks. All right, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, The Year of Our Lord 2010. Here's your Google Summary. As bass guitarist for a garage rock band, Scott Pilgrim, played by Michael Cera, has never had trouble getting a girlfriend. Usually, the problem is getting rid of them. But when Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, skates into his heart, he finds she has the most troublesome baggage of all, an army of ex-boyfriends, that is not correct, uh, who will stop at nothing to eliminate him from her list of suitors. Uh, so that's what Google says this movie's about, but my friends, what is this movie really about?
2: Uh, I guess it's, it's more of a relationship movie with random action scenes thrown <laughs> in, you know? It's almost like the action scenes are just there to kind of like give you something pretty to look at, but I, I think like the heart of the story is it's more about the, the characters and their relationships, at least that's the feeling that I get, but I, I do enjoy the pretty fight scenes.
0: Yeah. I mean, for anyone who hasn't watched the movie, the sort of overall premise is this kind of what if you were a normal person and then people started attacking you the way that they do in a video game in real life and like video game rules suddenly applied how would you respond which is a really fun like premise to put anything inside of and so instead of being like and that's how we're gonna like make our war games they were like and what if the then story happening inside of that premise is just like two people dating (laughs) which is yeah A pretty wild concept to be, like, what if in order to date someone, you had to, like, fight people off and win tokens and lives and whatnot in order to, like, get to your next date?
2: I I still puzzle over what does it mean when a person dies or gets defeated in the battles and they explode into coins? Like, are they (laughs) dead or... uh, I? Today, my current theory is they didn't actually fight in real life. They went to, like, a local arcade and played a video game, and and (laughs) the action scene is just a metaphor for that. I don't know. I'm very confused. It's all VR.
1: Well, I mean, to embrace my inner nerd girl, having read the comics, um, in mm. the comics, uh, this is a lot clearer. And all, you know, all due respect to Edgar Wright, he's an incredible filmmaker, and some of his best uh, handiwork is on a display in this film. But in adaptation, they kind of lost what the comics do really well, which is establishing that this is a video game world. Uh, Mm -hmm. all the characters have different skill sets and they're different sort of fighting characters and Scott Pilgrim is known to be the best fighter in Toronto. Mm. So So I'm just here to say that the comics do this better than the movie, you know, in classic Mm -hmm. nerd boy fashion.
0: Well, I find that really interesting because that change does say something very particular about our male lead, right? If in the comics he's known as like the best fighter in Toronto, but in this he's just... Michael Sarah, <laughs> Like, there is something about it where he's this, like, every man, nerd boy, kind of, you know, sort of frumpy and not boring. I mean, he's in a band and he, you know, whatever, but he's sort of very chill and very low key and doesn't necessarily stand out in a crowd. And then to be like, and now he has to fight is definitely a different <laughs> message than a story about the best fighter in Toronto.
2: Yeah, and there's also a disconnect, like, how is he the best fighter in Toronto? Like, he's not particularly built, and as far as we know, he doesn't have, like, a lot of formal training in martial arts or anything, so.
0: Right. Like, he's very sort of limp, weak, Michael Sarah esque and then Mm -hmm. suddenly in the middle of the fights, he's, like, this badass, except he doesn't even, it's not like he, like, gets a, you know, a step up in badass, or, you know, however that, what that trope term is. He's still Michael Sarah. he just, like, can punch
2: yeah like this this awkward white kid all of a sudden knows how to fight
0: (laughs) it's like one of my favorite shots is during one of the fight sequences uh the girlfriend ramona flowers is holding his wrists and essentially punching for him like he's a doll and when they're like waiting in the fight stance his hands aren't even in fists they're just sort of like limply hanging there (laughs) while she (laughs) slaps them against the other person and it's so hilarious but bewildering
2: yeah, it, but it might be a more realistic way that this character would fight in real life.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like Michael Sarah wouldn't like win a lot of fights.
1: But there does seem to be some like that's what I find confusing about it though is there seems to be some self consciousness with like casting Michael Sarah even in 2010 that was a pretty like self conscious mm-hmm. casting choice um, that they made to really emphasize the fact that Scott is like super average and not like a stereotypical hot dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the film is through the structure of the storytelling, suggesting that, like, Scott becomes a super badass fighter because of his love for Ramona and his commitment to her, which is, like, this... I don't know. It it, it reinforces a kind of conventional dating wisdom for men, for heterosexual Mm -hmm. men, that, like, when you really care about a girl, you're going to step up. You're going to (laughs) step your game up. Um... Yeah, and yeah. I don't actually know that that is a terribly beneficial thing for Ramona, which is a major meta-criticism I have mm-hmm. for this and the comics.
0: Yeah, I think that kind of leads us to my biggest criticism about this, which I think we should get into like right off the bat, because there's a lot to love about this movie. It's really well done. Um, but the, the romance itself, and I think this is in keeping with our other Manic Pixie Dream Girl stories that we've looked at so far this month, in that with all of these movies we've watched, I don't understand why the girl falls for the guy at least initially right like you can get to the end of the story and be like but they've been through blah blah blah." but like initially with all three movies we've watched so far in this month the guy upon the first meeting is in no way attractive (laughs) he either doesn't say anything interesting or he comes across super creepy or the woman is immediately turned off by something he says and then within a scene or two they're dating (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that happens so hard in this one where he's just like, I'm obsessed with this girl. And she's like, "Eh, whatever. I don't really care. And then two scenes later, it's like, no, but they were meant for each other. And so now they understand each other. And I just, it's baffling to watch because it does, you know, emphasize that sort of male fantasy of, oh no, she'll just understand that I get her. Even if I don't actually do anything (laughs) particularly.
2: Yeah. I I will say though, the, casting of Michael Cera I felt was a stroke of genius because while he he doesn't really have much going for him just like the character in the comics, at least in the movie it's Michael Cera who's like the best at being awkward white <laughs> nerd boy. So in, in a way he's kind of adorable even though he's like, you know, this kid who's just in a garage van and doesn't have a job but at least he's Michael Sarah, so you get this weird awkward comedy so he's got that, like the character in the comic doesn't is not nearly as awkward I feel mm-hmm. and I'm just like, why are all these girls falling for him? I have no idea.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a fun thing about the comic that the film the film gives hints to, but the comic is so consistent about that, like Scott gets girls all the time and his friends, his closest friends, don't get it. And they are constantly <laughs> saying things like, Scott, if you're if your if your life had balls, I would kick them. Because everyone just sort of like hates Scott a bit because he's not he's not a good person, genuinely. Like mm. he is always messing up. And the The comics uh, chalk that up to his being young, but it also kind of gets it at a sort of like mediocre white boy in a band privilege. Yeah.
0: Oh, for sure. Which is so funny because like the movie both acknowledges it and continues to flout this fantasy. So it is like it does confuse me because the movie is aware of itself. And I think that really is down to Edgar Wright, the, um, the director, the creator, because he has this way throughout a lot of his movies of sort of. Breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall, like he has this way of getting his characters to wink at the camera, in a way that you don't see in a lot of other movies. And so there is a lot of acknowledgement within this that Scott like sucks as a character, and all his friends are like, "Why are you getting all these girls? And why do you keep breaking all these girls' hearts?" And blah 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 blah. But at the same time, they're also like, "But look, Michael Sarah can get anyone."
2: Yeah. So I and I did want to ask ask y'all that question. Um, I mean, I think we would all agree that he's not a good person, but like. How bad is he? Because I know in the in the movies, he, I don't think he's a self-reflective. In the comics, he's like, he's constantly asking himself, am I a user? Am I a user? I'm not mm-hmm. a user, right? Um, but they kind of mm-hmm. took that out of the movie. So like, on a scale mm-hmm. of uh, douchebaggery, like, where is he?
0: Interesting. I'm not sure that I would say it's douchey. I mean, he certainly does douchey things, but I think everyone does. Or like, it's easy for a character to do that without being a douche. Because he's not necessarily doing things to try to put other people down or like be a badass or whatever he's just sort of like hapless and kind of clueless so maybe he's more of a tool <laughs> i know that's a fine line but
1: <laughs> it's a really like highly uh codified philosophical concept um yeah i think my biggest issue with scott is not even that he's a uh, tool as eliza appropriately points out but more that I am frustrated by the fact that the film, um, more so than the comics, and I know I'm going to keep saying this, but it's true, (laughs) the film focuses more on Scott's relationship to the journey through the evil exes, even though they're Mm -hmm. Ramona's evil exes, and it's Mm. her processing her own dating history and trauma, which you know is is sort of paralleled by Scott thinking back about dating Kim and all of that bullshit with knives which we're going to talk about <laughs> um and envy in 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 its pursuit of making Ramona Flowers into an iconic manic pixie dream girl cool girl which they do mm-hmm. and she is they sort of remove her investment in the story. Like mm. I heard, um, I heard someone on the radio describe her as a, not a manic pixie dream girl, but a, a Joy Division clinically depressed dream girl, which is <laughs> true.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's an interesting character. I was watching this movie um, for this with my roommate, who's been, of course, going through all of this with me as we've been watching these movies, and she'd never seen it. And halfway through, in one of the scenes when Ramona is talking about like, you know, it's hard to have my past keep coming up. And I just want to forget about it. And I thought that you would understand that. And my roommate was like, you know, she actually has more backstory than any of the other women we've looked at in this, you know, in this series. And I was like, yeah, no, she definitely does. And she has some of her own emotional growth and like, they allow Scott to acknowledge it to a certain extent. So in that way, she's a little more sort of well-rounded and developed than like the true manic pixie dream girl. But mm-hmm. she still exists for Scott to discover things about himself, right? Like, her role in the story, this movie is, this story is not about her figuring out how to deal with her past. It's about her past coming back to fuck with Scott. And in that process, she also admits that it's hard to deal with her past. You know, right? Like, it's it's starting to get there, but she's still just a a device. Mm-hmm. And a very stylized particular device of that.
2: Yeah, I was I was doing some research before the episode and... The internet seems to be very divided on whether or not um you know she's a manic pixie dream girl or like does she have a lot of her own agency does she go on her own journey um the the articles i read were almost like 50 50 coming down on Mm -hmm. both and i'm kind of in between too like i could i I think i see like both points of view like she definitely has more depth than a lot of the manic pixie dream girls that i've seen in film but Mm -hmm. um she also hits a lot of the same notes as the tropes and then I mean, we should probably talk about what happens to her at the end where she like loses her agency for the story to happen.
0: Yeah, there's this (laughs) whole sort of allusion to her being in an emotionally abusive relationship that then is not actually explored at all. And that I think may be the thing about her relationship that bothers me the most is that you're like, she's been really self-aware and confident and she doesn't want to talk about her past, but she seems to be really like, this is who I am and I'm okay with that. And then suddenly she goes back to this old relationship where she completely shuts down. She's got no personality and they never address it, right? Like they just defeat her ex-boyfriend and then everything's fine. And I feel like there's some trauma that needs to be discussed.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's, that's really makes the like ending, ending of the film to me, like it hits really different now that I'm older and I've been through more relationships Mm -hmm. to see her in the end. Scott's offer to go with her. That is the thing that gets her to like agree to continue on being in a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. You know, just the idea that he would show her the smallest amount of like care and consideration. Yeah. It's very dark. It's very dark, especially considering that in the way the film sets it up, it's different in the comics. The way the film sets it up is that Ramona doesn't find out about the whole thing with, scott seeing knives and her at the same time until the climactic mm-hmm. gideon fight and then after that she's just like oh so you used me to cheat on your 17 year old girlfriend and and now you just you, you want to come with me wherever i'm going oh that sounds good enough that sounds good <laughs> enough you're the nicest guy i've ever dated that's right. incredibly dark
2: yeah is that is that line also in the comic
1: that you're the nicest guy i've ever dated yeah Yeah, it is in the comic, but it's explored a lot more because remote is more Uh, remote remote is more of a character in the comics. But that's going to happen when you have a six volume comic as opposed to a 90 minute movie.
2: Well, her bar is is very low, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also, you know, as often happens with these kind of female characters who are more devices than actual characters if you think about the different sort of things you learn about her, they don't all necessarily actually line up thematically either because like there's this whole bit where, you know, Scott realizes she's broken up with everyone she's ever dated and he's thrown by that, you know, as you would be if you're dating someone and you're like, oh shit, they're going to break up with me. But it's not like at the end, she decides not to break up with him. She does. She walks away and then he comes back, except that the whole problem has been all of her exes keep trying to come back into her life, right? Like that's just a continuation of what's happened and doesn't necessarily match the mm. last relationship where clearly she's, you know, sort of the the one who's being taken advantage of in that relationship. Did she actually walk away but then she went back on her word or did he break up with her and that being the first real breakup she had that's what broke her? Like there it doesn't all really line up because they don't explore it enough. And so at the end when he's like, "No, but I still like you." And she's like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm deciding that's cool." Like where is that decision making fitting into her storyline and her themes because i don't really see it
2: yeah i mean the the movie cuts so much backstory for all the characters um Mm -hmm. i mean i would say maybe 20 percent of the graphic novels is just flashbacks uh for Mm -hmm. not just scott but for all the characters giving them backstory and that obviously adds a lot more depth but I mean, I definitely think Edgar Wright did what he could to condense mm-hmm. it into one movie, but it probably it probably shouldn't have been one movie. It probably should have been a, a trilogy. So you could really get to learn all those different uh, backstory notes for all the characters.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a shame in the adaptation that the, the character that suffers the most in terms of like between Scott and uh, Ramona is that Ramona's backstory and mm-hmm. her like presence as a as a perspective character gets pulled back. But I, but I wonder, I don't know, Eliza, what do you think? Like, is that an issue with this, like language of cinema that, that maybe he felt compelled to keep it with one perspective character?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think as a whole story, it makes sense as a type thing. You know, I, I think that a woman's part of the story getting cut out is pretty common in cinema and that's, you know, a bigger mm-hmm. issue. But I do think that this as a film works as a film and you're seeing it not just from Scott's perspective, but kind of from within Scott's inner circle. And then everyone else in the um, movie surrounds the inner circle. It's, you know, other bands they're playing, other friends of theirs, other people they've dated, you know, that kind of thing. And so it does make sense to sort of have her come into this story where you already know more of his backstory and his world because she's entering his world. But it also, I think, that it could have been done in a way where she feels a little more two-dimensional. Um, so that's that's sort of the question for me is how do you... Make her feel more two dimensional within this, you know concrete story rather than how do you stretch out this story? Because I think that you know it's got a beginning, a middle, and end, and a very clear sort of setting, which for a movie you need. Um, I will also say the movie itself, too, in addition to telling their story, is a lot about the stylization of the movie. You know, they clearly set out to create this comic book style movie which I say that way because there's lots of like movies based on comics, obviously, but this is really done in this very stylized way. You know, it's got the like the POWs and all that kind of appearing. And when someone's defeated, they turn into coins. But even just the like the jump cuts that they do and the editing that they do for this movie is very jarring, but very fun because it's so different from what you're used to. But it is to kind of give you that comic book idea, right? Where you're just seeing the one square of what's most important from that scene and then you can jump to the next thing you don't need like these intros and outros to scenes which is you know part of our normal cinema language and this movie doesn't have that and it like throws you when you're first watching you're like what the hell is going on but then it becomes really fun and it really draws you in and in order to have that stylization I do think they have to cut down on some of the more complex elements of the plot
2: yeah I I love The way it's directed and just how much it takes from the comic. I mean, there's so many uh, scenes and transitions and little in-jokes in the comic that they actually, that you would, I would never think would make it into the movie, but they they actually translate it beautifully. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think Edgar Wright did a great job with that. Um, But, you know, maybe uh, putting aesthetic over substance in some cases, but... You know, still mm-hmm. it's it's definitely a very fun movie to watch. Yeah,
1: I think the action scenes are amazing. And uh I was gonna make this an antidote slash supplement, but I think I'm just gonna say it now that I don't know if either of you have seen this, but the now defunct, um now sadly defunct YouTube channel Every Frame of Painting has an amazing video uh, about the uh, the comedic filmmaking of Edgar Wright and how he uses shots and sound mm. effects to create comedy beyond the dialogue, and it is just an amazing breakdown of all the yeah the like the small subtleties that he does with how he does scene transitions and the way he's framing shots and how he just uses the uh, the like unabashed stylization in a way to like create very funny movies. Like this is probably. I would say the funniest movie we've covered on the podcast. It is Mm -hmm. so, so well done in terms of the comedy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
2: credit to Wright for sure. But uh, I think a lot of the funniest lines actually were taken directly from the graphic novels. So Mm -hmm. also kudos to those.
0: Right, but you still have to film them in a way that is funny. You know, there's all these lines. And again, it's not just Wright. It's also the people he has. You know, he's got an incredibly comedic cast in this. But the way that they cut to someone and then they have a funny line and they immediately cut away in the sort of perfect almost like a dance a choreographed you know um, a choreographed way of editing the movie is it really does enhance the comedy um in a way that you don't get in a lot of other movies and, and particularly a lot of modern movies i think that editing as a comedic tool and it, they talk about this in the video that you you just referenced um but editing as a comedic <laughs> tool isn't used very frequently and right really has a feel for that in a way that it, it really enhances it and it's It's quite brilliant, um, but also can be a little off-putting if you're not used to it. You have to sort of give yourself a few minutes to get into the style.
1: Absolutely. And I think music is also used. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got an amazing way with music as well. Like, I I have to shout out to one of my favorite moments in the film that I didn't notice before this rewatch, which is there's a scene where Scott is uh, walking through a concert crowd and he's faced with knives you know, 17 year old Knives Chow, right? And he uh, as he walks up to her slowly, like fading in in the background, you can hear the broken social scene song anthems for a 17 year old girl. And I (laughs) had to pause the movie because I was laugh crying so hard at how layered a joke that is. Because of course, not only is the song appropriate um, emotionally, and by the title, it's also a Toronto indie band playing the Mm -hmm. song. So like every layer of it works as a joke. Like, golden absolutely golden
2: yeah and they he also uh incorporates a lot of video game soundtrack uh Mm -hmm. soundtracks at various points in the movie so he definitely understood his audience i don't know if he actually plays video games himself but he he understood kind of like what the the audience for this movie was and got those little in jokes in there. And I really appreciated that. Well, he
0: basically had to write Uh, a love letter to Nintendo asking to use a bunch of their sounds. He wrote it and he, he said, I think, um, (laughs) I think he was originally requesting use of uh, some of the music from Zelda and he wrote to the head of Nintendo at the time saying, I feel like this is the lullaby of my generation and it needs to be included in this movie. <laughs> and then once they approved that, Excellent. then they approved a bunch of the other Nintendo sound effects that they end up using as well. Whereas initially he thought they were going to have to create their own sort of slightly altered sound effects for like, you know, um, the like KO and things like that. Um, but clearly this is someone who loves the medium that he's working with and and parodying, um, which is cool to see. But sometimes I think that also means that even when you're trying to make something that's self-aware, there's a maybe a slight lack of self-awareness when you're too in the middle of it. Those are the moments where it kind of it walks the the line of being funny and and smart and well done versus just sort of being an homage to to nerd boys without really acknowledging any of the problems
2: there. I I, I think he manages to toe the line, but yeah, it's it's a very fine line. Uh, before we shred some of the more problematic parts of the film, can we just one more uh, thing I want to compliment the movie on is the cast. The cast is bonkers. Mm. Like, this cast would cost $50 million <laughs> if you hired them now. Uh, so I, it was it was just amazing they were able to hire all these people before they were all big things.
0: Right. I feel like this, this movie is, like, three years um, ahead of being four times as expensive as it was.
1: Right. Like, every time Chris Evans shows up, I'm like, what? Well, and Anna Kendrick. And, um,
0: I mean, like, it's just... And Aubrey Plaza, right before she was big. And Brie Larson, Academy Award right. winner. Like they were all these people who are all like 23. I mean, just an incredible cast. And they're all so funny and perfectly, you know, sort of pitch perfect in there. Jason Schwartzman, when he comes in at the end as, you know, the, the biggest ex, the big bad, whatever you want to call him, the final boss. He's brilliant in it. And he already was big at the time, you know, which is part of the joke, yeah. too. They're definitely playing on the star text of people like Michael Sarah and Jason Schwartzman and all of them, but also sort of creating the star text for a few of their cast as well.
1: Uh that actually the idea of the cast actually brings me to two things that I uh, that I want to now that we have uh, given ourselves permission to really like get our you know claws out, which I'm ready for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> First of all, the actor who plays Knives Chow, Ellen Wong, is amazing in this movie. And it mm-hmm. is wild to me that she never went anywhere really after it in any big, big films. And I, I think that we need to talk about how she's represented in the film as mm-hmm. maybe a reason why. And then secondarily, I want to talk about Mae Whitman, um, <laughs> who plays the uh, the quote unquote uh, by Furious ex, because there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, Roxy. Well, why don't we talk about Roxy first, uh, and then we'll get into Knives. I mean, just to start, the line, um, it was just a phase. Uh, I was just a little bi-curious. And then Mae Whitman saying, oh, well, then, honey, I'm just a little bi-furious. It's such an interesting pop culture relic now because it's obviously, like, offensive and bi-erasure in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also become sort of like an iconic scene for Mm -hmm. queer women, so it's like both at the same time, which I find fascinating and troubling and fascinating. Yeah, I
0: mean, coining bi-furious is great in the context of saying that making it just a phase means that you're not bi is now in you know, our understanding of how bisexuality works problematic. What I have a problem with, which not no, not a problem with, because they're aware of what they're doing in the movie, but what sticks out to me is when he finds out that one of the exes is a woman. Scott says, "You had a sexy phase." And we're just supposed to understand that what he means by that is, "Oh my god, you had sex with a lesbian. I find that sexy." And that's what's important about this, not that this is one of your exes, not that you might be, you know, exploring your sexuality. What's important about this is, "You had a sexy phase." But then on top of that, that's the only ex that she fights or that, you know, specifically really is a fight between mm-hmm. the two women. Um, and she takes control and there's an element there where i can't tell if it's because they really didn't want scott to have to fight a girl as he says he's like i don't know if i could fight a girl or if there's something to the and then people will be excited because they'll get to watch two women fight and that's a sexy phase mm. you know there's there's something about that that feels very particularly gendered
2: yeah it's that that might have been an Edgar Wright call because i i just read this volume i didn't finish all the volumes but i just read this volume and he actually scott pilgrim kills her with a sword in the graphic mm. novel um, and, uh, and the fight that, that, uh, Ramona has with her, with the hammer and everything, she mm. actually fights Envy in the graphic novel mm. in that, in that same fight and even defeats her with the same, like touching the back of the knee. So it's like a totally different context and mm. the way that they changed it, um, it definitely, you know, like you said, it it plays in more to the gender roles. I guess they didn't want Michael Sarah like slicing a woman with a sword on screen or something like that, but.
1: Well, it also makes the Roxy fight more sexualized, too, because oh, yeah. because that whole thing about the touching the back of the knee becomes a joke about how women having sex together is a more fulfilling kind of sex for women, mm-hmm. um, which the graphic novel doesn't go that far at all. It, it it uses it as an opportunity for Scott to, like, refer back to his sexual relationship with Envy, which creates some jealousy with Ramona. It's a lot more complicated of a scene. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I was really interested by that, too, Trey, that they add that, like, extra sexy element to The girl-on-girl fight to make it you know Hmm. more more playful which is interesting too because if you finish the comics Ramona actually fights Gideon in the end Mm -hmm. uh she she and Scott fight Gideon together so Ramona does a lot more fighting in the comics and I think to your point Eliza like there's very clearly a choice made here that Ramona fights in the girl-on-girl fight for for the for the male gaze
0: I was frustrated that she didn't fight Gideon more like she gets involved in the fight for like a second and then she's out of the ring again at the end and I really wanted to see her fight Gideon because we'd seen that this was an unhealthy relationship and I wanted her to take that power back within the language of the film and they don't really give her that chance so to then let the only person she fights be the other woman really does seem to diminish Ramona's power
2: oh for sure I mean I I definitely think like that should have been the final battle because like Mm -hmm. when you think about it Scott's beef are Gideon Gideon and Scott is not really the the beef there it's Mm -hmm. it's Ramona and Gideon so I mean that should have been the final fight in my opinion well
0: and what's more they let the character of Knives participate in that fight which honestly is the thing in the movie that I think makes the least sense like there's things in the movie that I would change or I don't like but I get where they're coming from and when you're watching it at the end and he teams up with Knives so that the two of them can take down Gideon together and Knives doesn't even have beef with Gideon and it does seem to be saying, like, look at what a good team these two are, even though, like, they should not be dating because she's a 17-year-old. It, it, I really wonder what the thought process was that got them there and if there were different versions of the script that maybe it made more sense or there were scenes leading up to it that sort of explained that better because I don't think that the final battle is as satisfying as it could be.
2: There are layers of problems with the, the Knives character and there's a part in the graphic novel where she actually um saves ramona even though she hates ramona at the time but Mm -hmm. she saves ramona to just be like uh all i care about is scott's happiness and whatever i'm Mm -hmm. just like wow okay that's that's interesting so i i guess we should talk about knives now and uh yeah (laughs) in all the different ways that it is problematic
0: yeah, well, I mean, that's such a great example of a care of a female character who revolves entirely around the benefit of the male character, right? If she's like everything she's doing is so either get Scott back or make sure Scott is happy, then like, what is it she wants out of life that doesn't have to do with Scott? We'll never know. But meanwhile, we'll start with the obvious. She is playing an underage woman. She is playing a 17 year old girl. Um, and Scott's 22. You know, a couple years later, this wouldn't be a problematic Um, dating thing but he's 22 seemingly either out of college or, or has not gone to college he's just a working adult and she is a high school student who's 17 and is dating him and their relationship is in many ways rather platonic it's not a particularly physical relationship but it is they kiss they hold hands they talk about you know being together and everyone in his life is like this is problematic this is problematic but the movie then treats her as just another option for scott So the movie doesn't actually seem to believe it's as problematic as its dialogue does.
2: Well, Edgar Wright actually filmed an alternate ending where he ends up with knives uh, and uh, you can see it on the DVD, you know, special features. And but the the test audiences they went with were like, no, that's not good. <laughs> Let's go with Ramona.
1: <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. But that's the part of the ending though for me that also doesn't work. Like the last five minutes of the film in some ways are like super, super disappointing. Like it's almost mm-hmm. like the end like I love this movie in so many ways, and I think the screenplay is really fun. But the last five minutes are like they sort of gave up because Scott mm-hmm. fights Nega Scott. Then they just like shake hands and agree to hang out later. And mm-hmm. then Knives and Scott are talking and Knives is like, you know, I know that I attacked your girlfriend with two, with double wielded, you know, short blades. But in the end, I think you belong with her and I have no investment in this situation. Chase after her, Scott, follow her down the airport hallway. And then he does. And Ramona's like, mm-hmm. great, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. None of that actually makes sense with the 125 minutes that preceded. Like, it doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, I... I- I think obviously what should have happened is they all went their separate ways, but I also feel that he, he's kind of written himself into a hole at this point, like they spend all this time and he defeats all these evil exes. And if they don't end up together, I, I, don't, I think a large portion of the audience would revolt mm-hmm. against that, even if it would make the most sense.
0: Yeah, I think that he does need to end up with Ramona to make the, the story arc work, but I think <laughs> there's a way to do it that wasn't touched upon in which it actually makes sense and they don't resolve the knives issue. Um, whereas they, they have options too, you know, she sort of almost dates young Neil, who his, who's his friend, who's like 20, which is closer to 17 and therefore a little less sketchy. Um, you know, so they could like have her realize that she actually likes Neil or they could have her realize that she doesn't need a boyfriend and like walk off for those reasons. And instead she's just kind of like, I think that Ramona's the better girlfriend for you. And since everything's about you, I'm going to back away now. Which is, yeah, ugh, yeah. kill me.
1: There's also yeah. another part of um, this character that people have touched on, Other people have touched on uh, with better grace than I'm about to now. But uh, the fact that uh, Knives is Chinese-Canadian specifically mm-hmm. has been touched on a lot. And the idea of sort of like Asian schoolgirl uh, fantasies have been touched on a lot with this character. Um, especially insofar as they exist in the world of like manga and anime and comics in mm-hmm. general. Uh, so there is a kind of troublesome thing going on there. But what, what, it, what complicates that in an interesting way is that Brian Lee O'Malley, the author of the comics, is mixed uh, Chinese-Canadian and European-Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have speculated upon like how he's positioning himself as sort of a biracial person in the representations of Asian and white characters in this world, and we do not have enough time to get into the complexities of that. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting how Knives exists in his mind as this like at times skirting stereotype at other times undermining it but overall still becoming a like a not well-rounded character i mean Mm -hmm. we still have the line where scott says like aren't are you even allowed to date outside of your race you know (laughs) right
2: (laughs) and then in the comic her dad like tries to hunt him down and kill him
1: oh god really yeah with a katana
2: uh, with a katana
0: oh jesus well and obviously i haven't read the comics but in the movie there's also a thing of sort of her discovering elements of culture through these older white people who she knows that i feel like is also very sort of diminishing Mm -hmm. of her own cultural importance like she when she meets ramona she decides to like get more into the music and dye her hair blue and adopt some more sort of you know 2010s japanese you know manga obsessed sort of visual style in her clothing and everything and the idea of her like discovering that through this white girl is also like threading that needle mm-hmm. of problematic and you know it's not like like uh Ramona's like a Harajuku girl and then she discovers Harajuku girls through her you know right like it's not that in your face but there's still elements of that that I'm like why is this the way that we're representing this young woman
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think the the humor really cuts at a lot of the problematic issues in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could reimagine it as like a dramatic action film, all of this stuff suddenly becomes way worse. You <laughs> know? Um, so I think like a lot of times the audience is so busy, like laughing at the jokes and, the, the incredible things that are happening on screen, we're, we're not stopping to think about, oh, wow, okay, 23, 17. Mm. Well,
0: and, and they do the thing that I feel like is pretty common in movies right at this time, right in around 2010, where they're starting to acknowledge the problems but not actually fix them. Like, there's a line when Scott's on the phone with his sister, played by Anna Kendrick, and she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're dating this 17-year-old girl. And he says, yeah, she goes to the Catholic school. <laughs> and she's like, you're dating a 17-year-old Asian woman in a Catholic school uniform, and he goes, I know, right? And so, like, they're aware that he's being a stereotype here. And then he just goes on and is a stereotype,
2: you know? (laughs) Exactly.
0: Like, it's great that you've acknowledged it, but you're still putting yet another example of a 20-something white nerd boy dating, excuse me, nerd man, dating a teenage Asian woman, girl, right? Like, you're still... Doing this and putting this into our minds while being like, we know this isn't
1: great, but here yeah. it is. Well, and the relationship between Scott and Ramona, even like, kind of is like that too, in a sense that it sort of like reinforces these nerd boy stereotypes. Like, the movie condenses their relationship really into him being like a nerd boy who falls in love with a magical hipster chick. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and part of the reason why that is, is because the film makes it seem like Ramon is the only character who has magic and can access this, like, subspace highway, (laughs) right? She's like a magical ninja. Nobody Mm -hmm. else is. But of course, in the comics, it's not like that. Everybody has a different kind of magic or whatever. And, but the film just like reinforces that through the way that it's like narrowing its representations. Yeah.
0: Right. Which again, feeds into this problematic manic pixie dream girl trope of this woman is sort of so beyond spectacular and this completely average man is not only able to get her romantically but like is impressive to her and manages to wield power over her in the end and that is really where this trope becomes so problematic because it's putting that idea out there both to men saying like you don't have to be impressive but you can get impressive women and to women being like it doesn't matter what you can do or what your abilities and powers are or your skills or interests you should be interested in these people and like, and that's where I feel like the trope really becomes the issue rather than just yet another movie trope. Because
2: I guess one way the movie defies the trope is like, part of the trope is that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl saves the the guy, mm-hmm. but um, in this one, like, he he tries to do that and it doesn't work. And then he realizes, no, I have to have, you know, I have to be, mm-hmm. have my own self-reliance, my own, my own journey has to save me, she can't save me, that kind of thing. So I, mm-hmm. I guess in, in that small way, it did defy the trope, but
0: oh yeah it's definitely it's an improvement over something like elizabeth town where like she shows up in order to save him from his own depression right like that's not the role that ramona Mm -hmm. serves and i do think that her relationship with scott is at least a little bit more sort of two equals um but it's still better is still not good (laughs) (laughs) yeah right like we're grading on a scale here and maybe we shouldn't
2: better than elizabeth town put that on the dvd (laughs) case (laughs)
1: love this movie in a way it, it is something that just brings me joy to watch if i don't think about it too hard you know what else brings me joy our patrons on patreon um i uh at this time in the show we always want to give some love to our romantic leads who are bob esther ian and this guy called trey um hey. we are so <laughs> we are so <laughs> thankful to you you are the
0: best thanks for your support if you want to support us you can go to patreon.com slash romcom and become a part of our Patreon family for as little as $1 a month um, and get lots of access to cool behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, depending on what what tier you join, you can get access to some cut clips from this month as well as some other stuff, so go check that out. You can also pick up some of our merch at romcomkilljoys.threadless.com and, of course, uh, like us on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Well, I think despite the flaws... We all enjoy this movie. So I'm going to ask this week for some supplements to add to Scott Pilgrim rather than replace it in our minds. Janelle, do you have, do you have any supplements to suggest this week?
1: I do. Uh, I mean, my first supplement that I would put out there is that you should just go and listen to all of the amazing Canadian indie bands on the soundtrack for this film. Uh, I discovered bands like Metric and Broken Social Scene through this movie, and I love them more than words. So definitely go check them all out. I'm also going to recommend a film that I think um, is not exactly a Manic Pixie Dream Boy plot, but something similar. It's kind of um, a also very Canadian a counterpoint to this film about a woman who is already in a relationship with someone and then meets a man who sort of expands her mind. This movie actually was recommended to me by Trey. So thanks, Trey. It's the movie Take This Waltz, um, directed by the great Canadian uh, woman director Sarah Polly, starring Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen and the very charming Luke Kirby. It is emotionally complex. It's beautifully filmed. And it also really centers um, Michelle Williams' character uh, and her journey through what it means to love someone, what it means to have your heart broken, and what it means to move on. So that's uh Take This Waltz. Trey, what have you got for us?
2: Uh I chose 3 movies that are very different, uh but I think touch on some of the same things that Scott Pilgrim does in different ways. Uh so for my first supplement is Kick-Ass, and that is mainly for the action. So if you like the comic book style presentation and action of Scott Pilgrim. I think you would enjoy the action scenes in Kick-Ass. The next one I had was Before Sunrise, which I think uh, the one of the protagonists, Celine, she hits a lot of the notes of a manic pixie dream girl stereotype, mm-hmm. but it's I think it's a much healthier depiction of like uh, a dynamic where they are both truly equal and they're in some ways. Try, trying to save each other but mm-hmm. um you know it doesn't have a lot of the the stereotypes that a movie like scott pilgrim does and then lastly a movie called francis ha uh which is kind of a movie from uh, what some might call a manic pixie dream girl's point of view um but she's just like a very interesting independent quirky individual who's like finding her way through life so like instead of always chasing the man around and going from his point of view now we're in uh, a, a woman's perspective, and I thought it was a, a very interesting story of of just self-discovery and finding your way in life, but from a very different point of view.
0: Alright, Eliza, what are your supplements? Um, so, first of all, I was trying to think of other sort of comic book style things that are, you know, me, I love me some stylization, um, and that really bring you into the story visually, uh, the way this does, and I just kept thinking about how much I love Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, if anyone out there still hasn't seen it, Please watch it. It's so good and it's completely unique. It really is unlike anything else I've i've ever watched. And um, it also sort of has a lot of different styles that it melds together in this really beautiful and really fun way. So if if that's what you liked about this, go watch Into mm-hmm. the Spider-Verse. Excellent. Um, and then the other thing is thinking about, you know, sort of manic pixie dream girl-like characters in, again, very stylized worlds. I was thinking about the TV show Pushing Daisies which um I know Janelle is going to have so many feelings about because she really loves everything about that. Um but Pushing Daisies is one of my favorite TV shows that I feel like just does not get enough love. Um it is from what 2007 I think and it had a couple yeah. seasons, a few seasons and then kind of petered away cuz people weren't watching it, which is just like such a tragedy it is quirky and weird and the female character the main female character definitely has serious like Zoe Deschanel vibes but she's not there to save anyone else she's there to save herself and she repeatedly sort of forces her way into the story anytime that she's uh, that the other characters attempt to sideline her which I love um and it's also just it's great Dark comedy and so weird and funny and visually fascinating. Yeah. Watch Pushing
1: Daisies. I could talk about it forever, but watch <laughs> pushing daisies. That's really the takeaway for this whole episode, everyone. Watch Pushing Daisies. If you haven't, why? Why have you deprived yourself? <laughs> Do it today. Well, Trey, thanks for coming and talking to us about this. It's been great.
2: Oh no, thanks for having me. It was such an honor to come on and uh talk about one of my favorite movies, uh all its warts and all.
1: <laughs> Read the comics. Read the comics. They're so good,
2: everyone. Read
0: them. I feel like we've given you guys a lot of instructions for this week, but you should follow (laughs) all of them.
2: Lots of homework.
0: All right, everyone, go do your homework. Talk to you next week.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the RomCom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram.
1: If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band
0: A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness.
1: Remember, killjoys don't let anyone kill your joy.
0: Not a rom com. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time.